All right, you want to take your Bible this morning and open it to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Thank you. When you look at the New Testament and you read through it, you see uh, throughout the New Testament descriptions of the activities of Satan in the world today. And as I was thinking about that this week, you know, one thing that we know about Satan, one thing that we can observe based on what Scripture teaches is that he is not lazy. He seeks to influence the hearts of believers to sin. He fills the hearts of some to lie. He sends his own servants to strike and beat down God's people. He disrupts the plans of God's servants. He tells lies. He tempts believers. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving. And he snatches the gospel away from the hearts of those who are hard to the gospel. He seeks to deceive Christians by disguising himself as an angel of light. He prowls like a hungry lion. And he is the father of all who practice sin. Whatever else we can say about Satan, he's not sitting idly by while God works in the world through his people. Now in 2 Timothy 2, we've already studied the first half of this chapter and seen two very important themes. The first is the importance of discipleship. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2 when he tells Timothy that the things you've heard from me to commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This idea that Timothy is to entrust the teaching that he's received from the Apostle Paul, he's to find faithful men that he can, can, can entrust this treasure to who will then take it and teach others. So this is the discipleship priority. The idea that we are to be engaged in the ongoing process from one generation to the next of taking the truth of God and teaching it and passing it down and entrusting it to the care of those who come behind, behind us. But the second theme is the necessity of evangelism, preaching the gospel. And the purpose for preaching the gospel, according to 2 Timothy 2, according to Paul here, why must we preach the gospel? So that God's chosen ones may be saved when they hear that Jesus died for their sins, that he rose again to give eternal life to everyone who calls on his name. And so if we're going to be faithful Christians... If we are going to be servants of the one true king, then each and every one of us is going to have to be involved in reaching the lost with the gospel, in proclaiming and preaching the truth so that the elect can hear and be saved. And also, we're going to have to be engaged in training up believers to obey the commands of Christ. So that was the challenge of the last two messages that I preached. How are you doing with that? Have you shared the gospel with anyone? 
Maybe you gave someone a, a gospel tract or for some other way that you were able to share the gospel. If not, then you need to get busy about doing what our Lord has commanded. I know some of you have. As I've talked with you and I've heard from you, pal, you have gone to take some effort to try to share the gospel with someone over the last couple of weeks. Good. We need to do that. We need to continue to do that. That's what God has commanded. On the other side of it, have you attempted to bring the word of God and his truth to another Christian in order to help them to grow as a disciple? Maybe this just happened in a conversation. You were talking with someone and they needed to be encouraged about God's goodness. <coughs> they need to be reminded maybe of what God had been doing in their life for good. And you had the chance to speak to them and encourage them in the truth. Maybe there was someone that you had to confront who was doing wrong. Maybe you had a conversation with someone and they, they expressed a, an understanding of the Bible that wasn't accurate and you had to correct that and you took the opportunity to do that. Those are all different ways in which we engage in this process of discipling and, and, and helping to build up and teach and train Christians to know and obey the truth. There's lots of ways that we can do this. Lots of ways that we can obey these instructions, these expectations, these commands. But know this, and this is what I want us to think about today. The devil does not sit idly by and watch you work for God. He doesn't just sit there while you're trying to go out and tell your neighbor about Christ, while you're trying to teach your children about Christ, while you're trying to, to talk to your grandchildren. Now, some of you are, are trying to reach your grandchildren for Christ. He doesn't just sit by and let that happen without trying to intervene. He doesn't just ignore that. He always and is ever trying to disrupt what you're doing for the cause of Christ. He opposes everything that is good, everything that is holy, everything that is righteous. He fights the will of God at every turn. And that makes the ministries of evangelism and discipleship even more difficult. And so... As Paul is going through in this letter that he's writing to Timothy, as he's, he's, he's impressing upon Timothy the importance of evangelism and discipleship, even in the face of persecution, and Paul is telling Timothy to embrace suffering because this is so important. As he's doing that, when he comes to verse 14, there's a pivot point here. Verse 14 is a fascinating verse because in this chapter, verse 14 looks backwards. He says, remind them of these things, looking backwards at the things he has already taught, the things he's already said, and charging them or and charge them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. This verse really serves as a pivot point. It looks back at the things he's already said, but then it looks forward to the issues that he's going to be addressing here in the rest of the chapter. So Paul encourages Timothy to serve the Lord faithfully. Know that the opposition, know that suffering is going to happen, know that difficulty is going to come, but serve the Lord anyways. And then he looks into the second half of the chapter where he's going to kind of, I think, deal with and talk about how it is that Satan seeks to oppose the work 
that God has called Timothy to do. And we get to the end of the chapter. In fact, the very last verse of the chapter, he talks there about those who have been snared of the devil and been taken captive by him to do his will. And it becomes explicit at that point that the devil is responsible for the opposition and the difficulties that are going to come in fulfilling the commands that God has given. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to examine uh, this question. Levi, you might have to advance this for me if it's not going to go on its own here. There we go. Nope, you went too far. There we go. That's what we want. Paul is talking here with Timothy about about Satan's opposition and how do we deal with that. So let's start there in verse 14. Let's read through the end of the chapter and then we'll ask God's help as we study his word this morning. Paul says this to Timothy, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Father, we come to you this morning as we look into your word and we acknowledge that this, uh, this is beyond us. The scriptures the very word that you have spoken. This is your revelation of yourself to us. And this is something that we, uh, Lord, we, we cannot uh, understand. We cannot grasp. We cannot appreciate fully without you. And so we pray that you would be gracious to us today. Father, give us eyes that are open, hearts that are willing to receive and submit to the truth. Father, we pray that you would use your word then, as the book of Hebrews says, it's like a, 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 a razor-sharp sword that can pierce, that can divide, that can cut, that can do surgery, if you will, to expose us, to open us up. And Father, I pray that your word would be that today, that you would, uh, would identify in our hearts and our lives areas of need. And then, Lord, we pray that, again, with the same skill that you would excise that which is evil in us, that which is harmful in us, that we might be made whole by your word. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts now and minister to us today. Father, use me to simply be your instrument in bringing the word of God 
to your people today in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to think about this idea here that Paul is talking about dealing with satanic opposition. One of the most popular passages um, dealing with the subject of spiritual warfare, when people think about spiritual warfare, is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Uh, and I was tempted to have my kids come up here with me. I see, um, oh, you're here. I was looking around. The other ones have abandoned the, the room, I guess. They decided they didn't want to have to, yeah. But anyways, um, no, we won't, we won't call them back up here to, to, to quote it. Um, as we, we memorize, this is a family. But um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is one of those passages that people like to turn to uh, in dealing with the subject of spiritual warfare, because there Paul uh, talks about uh, how believers need to put on the whole armor of God. And he says we need to do that because we're wrestling against a spiritual opponent, the devil and his followers. But that passage in Ephesians 6 is really focused on spiritual warfare on what we might call an individual level. The sense that, that Paul is describing there is how each one of us must prepare to engage in the fight with our enemy. But here in 2 Timothy 2, the issue isn't so much the, the personal attacks of Satan on the individual as it is on the ministry of the gospel and the work of God's servants in the church and in the world. And so what I want us to do as we consider this this morning is I think Paul gives us three ways that Satan tries to hinder God's work. And then Paul kind of warns us against them and shows us or, 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 or explains to us how it is that we should respond to these workings, these dealings of Satan in opposition. So understand the opposition is going to be there. If we're seeking to do God's will, if we're seeking to be obedient to the Scriptures, this is something we need to understand and expect. But, Paul says, there's, how, there's a way to respond to it. There's a way to deal with these things. And we need to understand that. So the first of the three strategies that Paul talks about is in verses 14 through 19. And uh, there Paul talks about the, the strategy of distracting arguments. Then you notice what he says there in, in verse 14. He says, Timothy, you're supposed to remind them, that's probably referring to the faithful men that he, that he pointed out in verse 2, remind them, and, and you might even notice the word them is in italics because he doesn't give the exact reference to this, but that's kind of supplied here by the context. Remind them of these things. What things do you remind them? He's to remind them of the things that he's already said. Uh, and probably, especially what he, what he said in verses 11 through 13, that remember that hymn that he kind of closed the last section with, where he talked about uh, if we died with him, that is, if we're truly born again, we will live with him. And if we, if we endure, then we will reign with him. There's a reward for believers who are faithful, who endure suffering. On the other hand, if we deny him, he will deny us. So there is a, a, a Danger that we might become apostate. We might deny Christ and in so doing prove to never have been a, a true disciple. And when we come to stand before him, he'll say, I never knew you. But at the same time, verse 13, if we are faithless, in other words, if we struggle, if we have times of failure, he remains faithful. And so we have the assurance of the faithfulness of God in Christ. And so these principles, Paul says, Timothy, you need to remind them of these things. You need to do this. And he says this, what he, what he says there in verse 14, he puts this in a, in a constant, continuous kind of a language. So you need to continually remind them. 
Not just once, but over and over again, Timothy, you need to be reminding the church of these things. But at the same time as you're reminding them of these things, encouraging them to trust in the dependability of God in Christ, he says, charge them not to strive about words. This is an interesting expression here, strive about words. The problem is that some people just like to hear themselves talk. And they'll take a contrary position on something almost by default. I heard somebody say it this way recently. Um, you know, if you say it's black, they're going to say, well, it's dark gray. Like it, whatever you say, they're going to have a different view. They're going to have a different opinion about it. It doesn't matter what position you take. They're going to, they're going to oppose. They're going to have some, almost just for the sake of argument, they're going to take a different position. They want to hear themselves talk. The problem is, when you talk to them and talk with them, they don't ever get to the important issues of the gospel. They love to argue about pointless things. Paul says just words here. Striving about words. The idea of splitting hairs. They they're just want to argue about things that don't mean anything. Paul says these things are profitless. Right? There's no profit in these words. But then notice what else he says, that they are not just profitless, they are ruinous. Right? The word that he uses here in Greek is the word we get our, our word catastrophe from. The idea is they, they turn things upside down. They will take something and they'll dump it upside down. It's ruinous. So just hearing people who talk like this, just listening to the pointless debates, Paul says, is harmful to those who hear it. It can be destructive to them. It can bring uh, a catastrophe on them. Just listening to this, not even engaging it, just listening to these kind of arguments can actually bring destruction to those who hear it. These are not harmless discussions. Why? Because they're debates that distract us from what is really important. And what is it that is really important? It's the ministry of the gospel and the word of God, the training of God's people. These are the things that are supposed to be our focus. But what happens is these arguments, these discussions and debates come up and they can distract us from what really matters. And we can spend all of our time and effort and energy arguing about things that really don't make a difference. I mean, I've heard people argue all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, you think about like, uh, I'll just give you a for instance that comes to mind. In the book of Judges, you might be familiar with the story of Jephthah, okay, who was going to go out to battle and he told the Lord, hey, whatever, when I go out to battle, if you give me victory in the battle, when I come home, the first thing that comes out my door, I'm going to sacrifice to you. And then he comes home and what, what is it that comes out his door when he comes home? Well, it wasn't the dog. His, his daughter, his only daughter, right? So what does he do with her? What does he do with his daughter? He made a vow to God. What does he do with her? Anybody want to venture to say what he does? Does he kill her? Does he sacrifice her? God accepts human sacrifice? Really? What does he, oh, maybe he dedicates her to the temple and she spends the rest of her life in the temple serving the Lord. That's a, a more palatable option. Honestly, we don't know. 
The language is very ambiguous. We just don't know. But people debate it all the time. And there's scholars who've written papers and articles arguing back and forth on that. Well, I would submit to you that's one of those points where, frankly, um, it probably shouldn't generate the amount of debate it does. There, what profit is there in that? Not only that, but again, those kind of debates can actually be harmful to those who hear them, who don't understand. Those whose faith may be immature, those whose faith may be weak, can be, can be, can be uh, under attack. Skeptics love to go to places like the story of Jephthah. And they, love to, they love to try to drive a wedge in, 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 in between people and God and trying to suggest that God somehow condones human sacrifice there. And again, the point of all that, the reason I bring it up is, is simply to say, this is the kind of thing Paul says that should not be argued about. Timothy, if you do that, you're losing focus on what's important, Timothy. You're losing focus on what matters. Now, what's the solution to that? Notice what he does here, because he states the solution in two ways, positively and then negatively. And positively, he says this, Timothy, you've got to be zealous. This is verse 15. Be zealous or diligent to present yourself to God as a laborer, one who passes the test, because you follow the straight path set down by God's word. What do we need to do instead of this, all of these arguments that would distract us, all these nitpicking, hair-splitting kind of things, all these pointless debates? What should we do instead? He says we need to focus on obeying the truth, on following God's word very closely. You see, our natural tendency is to wander off. Right? Isaiah 53, we're like sheep. And what do sheep do? They just wander. That in and of itself is just their natural inclination. And we're like that, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. That's what the, the hymn writer says. And he's right. That's our natural inclination. And of course, guess what? The devil knows that. He knows that we're easily distracted, that we, we, we have a tendency to just wander off. And so what does he do? He sends people to us with distracting arguments to get us over here, get us over there on a tangent, worried about things that don't matter. And then when we do that, we neglect the important things. Now, let me tell you, this happens to pastors. I'm constantly bombarded with trivial things. Things that have a potential to distract me from my calling in my home, in my neighborhood, in, in this community, and in the church. But it's not just pastors who are easily distracted and who are constantly bombarded with different things. You, as well, are under the same attack, same kind of opposition. The devil knows that he doesn't have to get you and I to abandon God's work. He just needs to distract us from it so that we're too busy worrying about other things than about the main thing. We never quite get around to sharing the gospel or teaching others the truth because we get involved in that pointless debate, a pointless argument about words that don't matter, something that is empty. So that's the positive. Paul says, focus on being a, a, a good and faithful uh, 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 worker. But then verse 15, the other side, uh, he's, or verse 16 rather, but shun profane and idle babblings for they'll increase to more godliness. He says, what you have to do 
is shun these things. These are profane, idle babblings. The, the, the idea there is these are empty sounds. That's really what it is. When a lot of professing Christians want to debate their pet issue, it's babbling, it's chattering. It's like a toddler who just walks through the house making noise just to make noise. And Paul says, that's what it's like when people come into the church and they want to bring their pet debate, their pet issue, and they want to make it a big contentious issue, and they want everyone to weigh in on it. Paul says, don't, don't allow yourself to be distracted from the mission by those empty words, those chattering people. A lot of noise there but not much significance. And Paul says, shun them or avoid them. This is what has to be done. We have to avoid them and their arguments. So if we want to summarize Paul's point here, how do, we, how do we deal with the distracting arguments? We avoid the arguments and we focus on God's word. Right? We stay focused on the word of God. That's, that's what we do positively. We are diligent. We're zealous to be good workers who rightly handle the word of God, who focus on staying true to the word. Now, in Ephesus, apparently, there's a specific example of this kind of problem, and Paul points to that. And so he takes the time here to single out uh, some specific people and uses this kind of as an illustration to show how we should respond to this. The two men that he names here verse, uh, in verse 17, or uh, yeah, verse 17, are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, um, it's interesting. Paul says that these are of this sort, okay? They are the kind of people who come in and they bring in these kind of pointless and empty debates and arguments. He says here that their words spread like cancer or uh, the other alternative translation to this word is the word gangrene. And that's maybe, a, maybe more appropriate because gangrene is a spreading bacteria that gets into a cut and, it, and it, then it, it destroys the tissue. And if you don't deal with it, it spreads. And if you don't deal with it long enough, it kills. I mean, gangrene is, is something that has to be dealt with, but, but it, it, it easily spreads from one to the next, and it can become a major, major problem. And Paul says that's what these men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, are like. Now, it's interesting, Hymenaeus was mentioned back in 1 Timothy as someone who was to be cast out of the church because he had strayed from the faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander there. Here it's Hymenaeus and Philetus. We don't know who Philetus is. We don't know who Hymenaeus was other than these references either, but it seems like he probably was the leader of this pack because he's mentioned in both of these letters. And apparently him being, uh, him being uh, disciplined out of the church in first Timothy didn't work because he's still in Ephesus causing trouble. He's still there causing problems in the church. And so unfortunately, Hymenaeus is a real problem here. But Paul says, these men are, are full of nonsense words. Now, what was their theory? Their pet theory here that they brought into the church, Paul says, verse 18, was that the resurrection had already been passed, that it had already happened. Um, there's a lot of debate about what exactly that means. You know, do they mean that the actual, like, you know, people had risen from the dead and, and, and the graves had been opened and all that? And um, Probably not, because that would have been noticeable. Like, you're going to have a hard time kind of not noticing that the graves have all been disturbed as the bodies have come up and all that kind of stuff. It just seems unusual that you wouldn't see that. Um, but the, the argument, most, most commentators that I read suggest that they probably were reading what Paul said. 
Think about what Paul says in Romans 6, for instance. Paul says, since we were buried with him, with Christ, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In other words, Paul was saying that when we are saved and we are baptized, that is, we die with Christ. But then Paul says, because Christ rose, we too are risen. And so we now live this new resurrection life. Present tense, right now. And so there seems to have been an overemphasis on the spiritual aspect of Paul's teaching of the resurrection. And suggesting that we are now living the resurrection life in its full extent. That this is the resurrection life. It's a spiritual... In other words, that, that when the Bible talks about being raised with Christ, it's not talking about a physical resurrection in the future. It's talking about our spiritual resurrection right now. Now, hopefully, as I'm saying that, your mind immediately goes to a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, if there is no resurrection from the dead bodily, then we are hopeless and, and, and we're to be pitied, okay? But uh, beside that... Um, think about this. If it's true that there is no future bodily resurrection because what we are experiencing now in Christ is it. If we have been raised and that's it, then that suggests to us that reigning with Christ in his kingdom is not a future thing, that it should be a present thing, right? And if that's the case, then Christians should not be suffering now because we are reigning now. And yet, where is Paul when he's writing this letter? And where is Paul while these people are teaching this in the church at Ephesus? Where is he? He's in prison. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for Nero to say the word and his head to be taken off his body. Hmm. So this teaching would seem to clash with everything that Paul has been saying to Timothy about embracing suffering because when you preach the gospel, you're going to suffer. These people are saying, no, in Christ, we're reigning. And this is the, re the real resurrection. So that is probably appears to be the kind of teaching that was going on here. They are, are taking what Paul said, but they're corrupting it. They're perverting it. They're twisting it. They're getting it wrong. Now, Paul says that these two men and their empty chatter, the end of verse 18, he says that it is already overthrown the faith of some of the people. So there are some people in the church at Ephesus who have heard these men, have bought into what they're teaching, and their faith has been destroyed. But think about that. This is exactly what we would expect to happen. If you tell Christians that they shouldn't have to suffer, right? If you trust in Jesus Christ, you don't need to suffer. Everything will go well for you. God's got a wonderful plan for your life. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be happy and satisfied. And every relationship and everything going on, it should be good. All you got to do is profess it, claim it, pray for it, ask for it, whatever, and it will be good because this is God's promise for you. And I can muster up dozens and dozens of scripture verses that say so. If I was that kind of preacher, I could do that. Now, why is that a problem? Because what happens <laughs> is that life inevitably involves suffering, doesn't it? Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you live, when you live. Doesn't matter how much money you make. Doesn't matter what kind of family you have. Doesn't matter. Life involves suffering. 
going to happen. If you haven't suffered yet, just wait. It's probably because you haven't lived long enough. But most of you, even at young ages, have experienced some measure of suffering, some measure of pain and discomfort, some measure of hardship. It's because life involves suffering. You live long enough, you're going to say goodbye to people you love. You're going to suffer. That's it. I mean, that's... And, and then on top of that, if you are a faithful Christian who wants to live for God, wants to be obedient to the Lord in this world, guess what? You are swimming against the stream. That's not going to be easy. You're going to suffer. You're going to have consequences. You're going to have difficulties and disagreements with people. Maybe your own family. Maybe your neighborhood. Maybe in your community. Maybe at work. You're going to have people who oppose you. People who, who will speak ill of you. People who mistreat you. Only because you want to be obedient to Christ. But when you're being taught that you should be reigning now, you shouldn't be experiencing suffering. You should be experiencing all of God's goodness and blessing. When that doesn't match up with what you experience, what happens to the faith of those people who've bought into the teaching? The faith is destroyed. You see, that's what Paul says. They've overthrown the faith of some because they've bought into this teaching. And the consequences of it are devastating. And Paul's response to this, I love it. What is, how does Paul deal with Does Paul say, listen, let me, let me tell you, Timothy, I've attached, by the way, I've attached, Timothy, a lengthy dissertation um, on the resurrection to prove that these men are wrong. No. What's, what's, what I love about this, what Paul does in response is go back to the scriptures and remember that what God's word says is true. So he's illustrating, he's, he's acting out what we're saying here. There's a, there's a debate that would distract us. Timothy, don't be distracted. Go to the word, right? How does he do that? He gives us, he gives us this in two statements. Uh, in verse 19, he says that the, the foundation of God stands sure and it has a seal. In other words, God has marked it. He has sealed it. That this foundation is sure. You don't have to worry about it. It's not crumbling, Timothy. It might look like it, but it's not. How do we know? Because God says so. Now, no, notice, the first thing he says, the Lord knows those who are his. That is a quotation taken from the book of Numbers. Numbers 16 and verse 5. The second one, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity, is probably, I think, a reference to Numbers 16, 26. So both of these come from the same chapter in the book of Numbers. Now, what is that chapter all about? This is the account of the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. You remember that? In the wilderness, Moses and Aaron are leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. They're leading them through the wilderness. They're going to go to Canaan. They're going to take the land that God has promised them. And along the way, they got this group of people who come up and say, you know what, Moses and Aaron, you guys are arrogant. You guys take too much on yourself. You think you have the right to be in charge, and we disagree. And so they challenge Moses and Aaron. And here's what Moses says. He says in number 16, verse 5, tomorrow morning, Yahweh will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. Moses says, you know what, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, all you guys, let me tell you something. God knows who is his. That's what Moses is saying here. That's what Paul is quoting here from the, the Greek translation of it. He says, God knows who is his. Moses is completely confident 
that the Lord can distinguish between those who truly belong to him and those who don't. The real believers and the false professors. And so he and Aaron don't engage in debate with these men. They don't get involved in the... They, they say, listen, we're going to focus on what we need to do and we're going to trust God to deal with this. God can handle this. Now, what happens in that situation? Well, the Lord tells them that uh, they are, the next morning, that these men are supposed to bring their censers so they can bring their censers to burn incense and they're going to all bring them before the, 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 the tabernacle and that God would make it clear who is his. And we read, the next morning, the Lord shows up and his response is, I'm going to kill them. In fact, I'm going to kill them all. Moses, Aaron, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy all these people. I'm not putting up with this. And Moses and Aaron intercede, and the Lord warns them. And so in verse 26, Moses and Aaron speak to the people. And here's what they say to the rest of the people. Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. I think this is the second part of what Paul is referencing here. Depart from them lest you be consumed in all their sins. He says, touch nothing of theirs. Lest you be consumed in all their sins. And when he finished speaking, the text says the ground opened up and it swallowed those men and their families and their tents and their possessions and everything down into the earth, swallowed them alive, whole. And they were destroyed. The only people who survived were those who separated themselves from them. I think Paul points back to this to show, listen, Timothy, just focus on the truth. Focus on God's word. Focus on what is right and what is good and let God sort it out. But then he kind of furthers that by pointing out the solution here is not to engage these men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, not engage their arguments, but to avoid the arguments and focus on God's word. Trust that God is able to preserve his people, that God is able to judge those who are only pretending. At the end of the day, God is not threatened by Satan's opposition, and we can rest in that knowledge And so the first thing is that tendency to be distracted. And Paul says, don't be distracted. Simply trust in the Lord. Keep your your eyes focused on his word. But the second strategy the devil uses is found in verses 20 to 22. And so this kind of builds on the last one, the last reference about the idea of separating, letting God's people depart from iniquity. Because in verse 20, Paul uses an illustration. And he says, there's a great house. And in that great house, there's vessels of gold and silver, but there's also vessels of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. And so he says, we can imagine a wealthy house. That's the idea of a a great house or a large house. It's wealthy. There's a lot of stuff inside this house. There's a lot of jars and and, and pots and utensils and, and all sorts of different serving things and things that you would use in the house. And Paul says, some of them are made of gold and silver, very expensive stuff. Those are the kind of platters and serving dishes that you bring out when you got an important company coming over and you want to make an impression. And so you use the finest of your, of your, of your serving ware and your, you make sure everything looks really good. Other things, he says, are made of more mundane things. Wood, clay. These are used for less prominent things. First of all, you don't bring these things out when the, when the, when the you know, VIPs come over for dinner. 
But even that, even beyond that, these are the kind of things you use for less prominent things. You might use them for taking out the garbage. Or worse, eliminating waste. Back in the day before there was indoor plumbing, they had to use utensils or, or you know, jars and bowls and things like that to take care of those things. Some of those things, you would just throw the bowl out with the waste. It wasn't worth even trying to reclaim it. Just take that bowl out there and get rid of it. Be done with it. You certainly are going to put those dishes on the table when your guests arrive. Now, as we read that, we read the illustration, and we might think, okay, what Paul is going to do now is he's going to talk about how there's different people in the church. There's some people that are gold and silver, and some people that are wood and clay, and hopefully you're one of the gold and silver, and you don't have to be the wood pot that gets used as the chamber pot, okay, or something like that. Um, that's if you're on the cleaning crew. Sorry, you have to clean the bathrooms. I don't know. Um, I'm kidding. That's... But that, we might think that's where he's going to go with this, but that's not what he does with this. In fact, he gives a very different illustration here, not talking about different gifts. Because what he says in the next verse is so important, in verse 21. He says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now, this idea is that... that, that, that Someone who's a vessel, mere vessel made of something, whatever you are, gold, silver, that's not really, not really that important here. What's important is that you, if you are a vessel and you want to be used for honorable things and you want to be prepared for honorable things, you have to cleanse yourself, separate yourself from those that pollute, from those things that are corrupt. And so what he's saying here is the devil's second strategy is defiling habits and people. Sin corrupts us. Sin pollutes us so that we aren't useful for any good work. Just like some of those dishonorable uses corrupt and pollute the very utensils and very uh, instruments that we use them for. Again, nobody's going to take the garbage can, take the garbage, take the bag out of there, throw it out, and then use it to serve food out of. I mean, even if you cleaned it. I don't know about you, but I... I don't think if I took it outside and bleached it and cleaned it, I don't think I, I still wouldn't want to eat out of it. I still wouldn't want to use it for serving food. It, it's just the thing itself is defiled by the fact that we've used it for that. But Paul says here, we want to distance ourselves from that. We want to cleanse ourselves from that. Separate ourselves from that pollution and corrupting influence. But what does that mean? What does it mean to cleanse ourselves here? Well, he, he explains in verse 23. He says, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So the idea here of cleansing ourselves means to flee youthful lusts and follow after righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Again, we want to separate ourselves from polluted people and from their influence. But the problem, of course, is that we have these youthful lusts within us that make it difficult. Now, the term youthful lusts here isn't talking primarily um, about sexual temptation, although that would, certainly that would certainly qualify as one of these things that would defile us. But it really is referring to any sort of passion or desire that would tend to cause us to become dishonorable. And specifically here, 
I think we can kind of see based on what he says we should pursue after, what we should follow after, kind of tells us what we should be avoiding, what we should be fleeing from. Because you notice these, these two things go together, as we've talked about before. To run away from, to flee certain things means to follow after other things. You, you, you do one by doing the other, right? So we flee the sin and the wrongdoing by pursuing these good things. That's why he doesn't have to enumerate a list of things to flee, because that list is forever long. We always come up with new temptations, new sinful things to flee from. If we just pursue these things, we'll be fleeing the youthful lusts. So that's what he says here. What is it that we are to pursue? Well, he says we pursue righteousness. Righteousness means uh, that we have to reject immorality, reject greed. We, 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 we seek after that which is right, which is morally good, that which is virtuous. That we're pursuing those things. He says we are to pursue faith. Pursue faith. That means a life of reliance and dependence on God rather than self-reliance. We have to pursue love. Pursuing love means that we become givers rather than takers. We become selfless rather than self-centered. We're willing to spend and be spent, as Paul says, even if that means that we're loved less in doing so. Right? We, we love by giving and serving rather than taking and being served. And we pursue peace, Paul says. There's a kind of restlessness that often accompanies youth and immaturity. And I think Paul would say to us here, that restlessness is dangerous. We need to pursue peace. And so we need to reject the, the, these, again, these, he already talked about the distracting arguments, the pointless debates, because those things disrupt the peace that we're pursuing. But most importantly, I want you to see here what he says right at the end of that verse, verse 23, because he says that we're to do this, we're to pursue these things with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. This may be the most important point of what he's saying here. Because the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. I realize that in 21st century uh, America, um, this idea that there is such a thing as a lone ranger Christian is, has got some traction. A lot of people are like, well, it's God and me against the world. Well, that's not the way it was ever intended to be. A lot of people, and, and this I think has been exacerbated in the last year by, by the experience of the pandemic and people having to be isolated and separated at home. And then, of course, with that, the rise of, of you know, quote, virtual church, right? Whatever that is. Um, and yes, we do live stream our services. I'm thankful for that. Thankful that we have the opportunity to do that for those who can't be here. But we recognize that's not a good and not a satisfactory substitute. It's a necessary sometimes, a necessary evil, if you will. But it's certainly not a, something we would encourage or prefer. But what's happened, unfortunately, for some people in this last year is it's given them the opportunity to say, well, I don't really need to be with the church. I don't need to be with God's people. I can do this on my own. I can be at home and I can just tune in. And again, I understand sometimes because of circumstances, providentially, we have to do that. Fine. But we understand it's, that's not ideal, and that's certainly not something we should accept and embrace. But that's what's happening today with a lot of people. And I'm thankful for you 
I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the commitment of the people in this church. I'm thankful for Nico Hartzine, who a year ago, um, about a year and, I would say about a year and maybe six weeks ago back, he was, we were under, under the, the lockdown orders. And I remember him saying to me, hey, can't we just get a small group together? Like, he just wanted to be with God's people. And of course, as soon as the lockdown order went down, we, we started to pursue that. How can we do this then? How can we start having gatherings again? How can we start doing that? Because we needed it. And I so appreciated his desire to do that, to be a part of it. It's an encouragement to me. Albert was an encouragement to me. I'm going to single you out, Albert. I'm sorry. But Albert said to me one day, this was, this was back last year, probably May. Um, maybe it was late April or, or early May. And Albert said to me, that he had observed in himself a, a growing desire to be with the people here at the church. And that surprised him. But, it, but God was showing him how much it meant to be with the people of God in the church, how much that important that was. And for me, that was a huge encouragement when I heard him say that, because I thought, yes, that's what I want. I was going nuts here without you guys. I was, but the point is that we need this. We need to gather. We don't need to be isolated and alone. And again, I understand providentially, sometimes we're hindered from doing that, but we recognize that as God's providential hindrance, not as the way it should be. And we always are seeking to return to the fellowship of God's people because Lone Ranger Christians don't exist in the New Testament. This idea of God and me against the world doesn't exist in the New Testament. The New Testament life of the Christian is a life of community where we need the help and support of the community of faith. And what do we call the community of faith? Well, we call it the local church. That's the community of faith. The best defense against Satan's attack of defiling habits and defiling people is this, for us to pursue godliness as a member of a local church. That's the best defense. Be a part of a church where God's people are pursuing this. Because notice, he says, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We're looking for other people who want to be godly. We're looking for other people who want to pursue and follow after righteousness, love, faith, and hope, and, and peace. We're looking for those kind of people, and then we want to hang out with those people because they're going to help us pursue the same thing. You see? That's what he's saying. Look for people who are going the same direction, who are, who are fleeing youthful lusts and following after these virtues. Look for them and then follow with them. Do this together, right? This is meant to be done in community. It's hard work to flee youthful lusts, isn't it? Even if you're not youthful anymore? <laughs> it's hard work to flee youthful lusts. It's hard, hard work to flee the desires of our hearts. It's hard work to run from those and run to these virtues that God would have us pursue. That's difficult. And God's word is filled with warnings about this, and we, would, we should listen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He says in Galatians 6, verse 3, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You need a community of other pure-hearted believers around you to share the journey toward holiness. And that is only going to be found in the local church. Now, one more strategy that Satan uses in the closing verses of this chapter, and we'll be done. We need to see this, though. 
Satan loves to bring difficult people into our lives. He loves to bring difficult people into our lives. These are the kind of people that, that stir up strife and conflict. Paul says in verse 23, again, that we should avoid foolish and uninformed disputes because he says they produce conflict and fighting and the, the, the servant of God, verse 24, is not to be a brawler, not to be quarrelsome. Now, you can go back to 1 Timothy 3 and there Paul gives a list of qualifications for the overseers. We talked about that a number of weeks ago. And in that list of qualifications, Paul says that the overseer, that's the pastor, is not to be violent, but instead is to be gentle. And so the qualification of pastors is probably in Paul's mind here. And so it might be, some people read this and say, well, the servant of the Lord here in verse 24 must be talking about pastors. Pastors need to be gentle, need to not be quarrelsome. Well, that's true. But I don't think we can limit it just to pastors here, because whatever must be true of an elder, right? whatever is required to be true of a person so that he's qualified to be a pastor should also be true and should be the pursuit of everyone in the church, shouldn't it? Shouldn't we all be striving for those qualities? Even if we never have the role or responsibility attached to us, shouldn't we be striving for that? I think we should. So no matter what, you, what position you have, you should be striving for these qualities, even if this is applied specifically to pastors. The other thing that Paul says here, and, and again, this is where the connection back to pastoring is important because Paul says this, this not only must the servant of the Lord be not quarrelsome and gentle, he must be able to teach. And that's another qualification that's required of a pastor. But remember... Back in verse 2, Timothy was to find faithful men and entrust them with the word so that they would teach others also. It's not just the job of the pastor to do discipleship. It's not just the job of the pastor to teach. I've been challenged with this this week. The writer of Hebrews looks at the Christians that he's writing to and he says, you know, there's a time when you should by now be teachers, but you're having to be taught. He's not talking to pastors. He's talking to average Christians. And he's saying there comes a time when you should be teaching. And if you aren't teaching, there's a problem. The problem is you're too immature. You need, to get, you need to grow up a little bit and start teaching. We're going to talk about that more later. I've got some thoughts on that, but not today. But the point here is that this is, this is beyond just pastors. This is really applied to all of us. Timothy is going to find faithful men and engage them in the process of discipleship, and you and I should be doing the same thing. You don't have to be an official teacher or preacher in the church. You don't have to have a Sunday school class assigned to you to be a teacher to be able to teach the Word of God and disciple other people. And I can guarantee you that if you are interested in serving the Lord and being a, a ministry to Him in the church, that He is going to bring difficult people into your life. Yay. I promise you that. He's going to bring difficult people into your life. People that frustrate you. People that are hard to love. People who stir up conflict and trouble. These are the very people that Satan would love to use to destroy our ministry and destroy our commitment to Christ. What does Paul say that we should do in response to them? He says this, refuse to fight, but teach them with patience and pity. You know the saying, it takes two to tango? I'm not much of a dancer. My wife will attest to that. But that's an expression, it takes two to tango. Because the tango is a kind of a dance that normally has to be performed by two people working together. 
Well, that also applies to fighting, doesn't it? It takes two people to fight. And we always want to blame other people when there's a conflict, when there's a fight, when there's a disagreement. We always want to blame other people. Well, if they weren't so whatever, then this wouldn't have happened. Then we wouldn't be arguing. <laughs> you want to see, it takes two people to do that. You have a choice, Paul says. You can simply choose to refuse the argument. You don't have to engage in the fight with these people. They're difficult people sometimes. But you don't, have to, you don't have to engage in the fight. In fact, what Paul says, you need to understand what's really going on. See, when this difficult person comes and this person who's disruptive, who, who creates trouble and dissension and, 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 it, and it seems to just bring conflict, Paul says, understand what's really happening with this person. According to verse 25 and then verse 26, this is somebody who has been ensnared by the devil. They have been taken captive. They are doing the devil's will because they're trapped. That's why I said you need to teach them with pity because we need to understand they have been captured. They've been ensnared. Our goal is not to win a fight, but to be the instrument God uses to bring repentance and to free them from Satan's grasp. Think of how that would change how we interact with difficult people if we recognized that they were ensnared in Satan's trap. And instead of trying to win the argument or win the battle, we sought to see how we could set them free from the trap. How could we be an instrument of God's grace to them? How can we bring, how can we bring them to repentance? That's what Paul says here. He says, able to teach patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So yes, it involves correction. Yes, it involves instruction. Yes, it involves teaching. But with an attitude of humility, with great patience, with pity, with understanding of where they're at. You see, it's not personal. It's spiritual warfare. The devil is the enemy, not the person who is difficult to deal with. But when we understand that, when we acknowledge that, then we can respond differently. Instead of responding in anger, we can, res we can respond with gentleness. Instead of becoming frustrated, we can be patient. Because I realize it's gonna, it, might, it might take some time to work, to continue to, to confront, to try to bring this person to understand the truth, to see that they've been ensnared by the devil, to embrace the truth of God's word and be delivered as they come to repentance. The key attitude that we have to have in this is humility. Paul says it, takes, it really takes humility here. It takes humility to walk away from a fight. It takes humility to stay patient with someone when they just don't seem to be getting it. It takes humility to see others as victims of Satan who need to be set free and not as enemies who have to be defeated. But this is what God's Word calls us to do. So let me ask you more question today. Do you want to be a worker who is approved by God, not ashamed to stand before him? Do you want to be a vessel that's useful to God? Do you want to be God's servant to deliver people who have been taken captive by the devil? Then pay attention to these warnings by the Apostle Paul. Stay focused on the truth of the gospel. 
Separate yourself from the sinful passions and people and cultivate a heart of compassion, not resentment, toward those who are difficult to love. And may God grant that each of us may be a pure vessel fit for the master's use. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the tenderness with which Paul speaks, even here dealing with a situation in which there are people who are, who are disrupting and causing trouble in the church, and yet Paul recognizes that ultimately the opposer is Satan himself. He's the one who would seek to disrupt the ministry of the church. He's the one who would seek to bring uh, brothers and sisters at odds with one another and create conflict. And He's the one who would distract us from the work by getting us to chase after all sorts of things that don't really matter that much. Father, help us to see the real enemy here. Help us to see that in our own lives, in the, in the conflict we have with others, in the, in the, the, the difficulties that we face, and in the, the, the distractions, and even the, the, the people and influences that are temptations to us, that to see that this is Satan's way of trying to disrupt your work. Father, help us to rely on you continually, to come back to you, to seek your help, your guidance, your strength, to seek to obey what your word says here that we might be vessels fit, prepared, cleansed, ready for whatever work you call us to do. And however it is that you want to use us to preach the gospel and use us to make disciples and teach others and train them to obey the word. Father, help us to see our own responsibility here and then rely on you for the strength to fulfill it. And I pray that you would work in our hearts today Cause us to be humble before you, to confess areas of sin. Maybe we've been going about this wrong. Maybe we've fallen prey to some of these temptations, some of these oppositions of Satan, and we've been distracted or we've gotten polluted by sin. Help us, Lord, to turn from these things and to cleanse ourselves by your grace. And Father, if there's one who's here hearing me who's not trusted in Christ, help them to realize that they are a vessel fit for destruction, the word says. And that apart from Christ, they will be lost for all of eternity. The gospel is for them, first and foremost, that they might be set free from sin by trusting in Jesus Christ. And I pray they would turn to you and cry out for mercy today, that you would forgive their sin because Jesus died for them. I pray that you do this in the name of your Son. Amen.